his creation. Job 38.1, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this far you may come, but no further? And here, your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning? Since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home. Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? By what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt? to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? And the frost of heaven, who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season, or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? 
Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can pour out the bottles of heaven? When the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy. They go strong with grain. They depart and do not return to them. Who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager, whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling? He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes, or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great, or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened. Nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the, the thunder of captains and shouting. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high on the rock? It dwells and resides in the crag of the rock, the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar, its young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there it is. Wherever the Lord answered Job and said, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile or 
Literally, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Congregation, as we look at Job 38 and 39, it is clear to us as readers who've been going through the book chapter by chapter that Elihu was wrong when he said that God would not come and speak to Job. And yet it's also clear that that Job was wrong insofar as he doubted the goodness of God and thought that he was qualified to make a judgment about this God of creation. God makes very clear in Job 38 and 39 that he alone is sovereign over all and Job and we need to understand our limits. He's the creator and we are the creature. And yet even as we see that in these chapters, I want you also to see how this God of creation who, who yes, humbles Job, also condescends by grace to speak with him. And to make him know God's fatherly care over his creation. This speech is not only a speech about the power of God, but about the goodness of God. It is goodness and even allowing suffering and trials to exist in this world, which come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's what we see in Job 38 and 39. It's important that we see all three of of those themes if we're to understand what God is truly saying. He's not just saying, Job, you're a puny creature and and you don't know the things that I know, so butt out. There is an element of that. But he's also showing his fatherly goodness and even his ability to take the adversity he sends upon us in this veil of tears and use it for our good. And so we need to hear all three of those themes, Job's limits and God as creator, God's goodness as our loving father, and yet the continuing presence of evil as not undermining that, but showing us something of God's providence. Notice each of those those themes we read of in Lord's Days 9 and 10, Job's limits as the creature and God as creator. God's goodness as our Father, and yet the continuing presence of evil and suffering as part of God's providential plan. So look at me first at Job's limits as God confronts him with the fact that he is the creator and Job is not. He invites him to prepare himself to answer these questions about creation. It says, Job, where were you when I, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or can you tell me who determined its measurements or um, what its foundations were fastened to? Can you tell me who laid the earth's cornerstone when the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with its doors? God is taking Job on this, this tour of creation from the very beginning and reminding him what we just confessed in Lord's Day 9. What we confess each week in the Apostles' Creed that God is the creator, that out of nothing he created heaven and earth and everything in them. The clouds of verse 9, the limits of the sea in verses 10 and 11, the sunrise 
verses 12 through 15, even the place of the dead in verses 16 to 18. He controls the light and the darkness in 19 to 21, the snow and the hail of verses 22 through 24. He divides the rain and causes it to fall on the land, even the land where no one dwells in verses 25 through 27. Satisfying the desolate waste and causing it to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Do you sense the joy of God and his creation throughout this chapter? Or did you notice how how he even calls himself in verse 28 the rain's father? Who says, has begotten the drops of dew. Or he uses maternal imagery to speak of the frost and the ice in verse 29. From whose womb did it come forth? He's showing the intimate connection between the creator and, and even water in all its forms. He describes the consolations in verses 31 to 33 and asks Job, can, can you bind the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Do you know the, the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Or 34 through 38, can you lift up your voice above the clouds and send forth lightning? The lightning that we sang of in Psalm 29 or saw in um, Exodus 20. Can you number the clouds and, and pour out even the bottles of heaven and the rain? And then God takes Job on this tour of, of the animal creation. It says, Job, can you hunt for the prey of the lion and satisfy the hunger of the young lions? Notice God is here implying that he is the one who ultimately hunts and feeds them. Verse 41, who provides food for the ravens when its young ones cry out to God and and, uh, wander about for lack of food. God is saying he hears the cries even of birds. He's saying here something similar to what he says in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 10 about how he even cares for the grass of the field or the birds in the air. He hears their cries says he watches the wild mountain goat or the deer give birth, observing the calving, not with the, the dispassionate eye of a mere observer, but with the loving and watchful eye of a father. It says he numbers their days until birth. Verse 2, he's, he's counting down the days until their arrival. They are the objects of his tender care and their times are in his hands. He sets the wild donkey free in 39 verse 5, making his home the wilderness and the the, the whole range of the mountains, his pasture. Reminding us that what's true of mankind in Acts chapter 17, that God determines the boundaries of our dwelling, is also true of, of the animals, even of the wild animals. Christopher Ashe says of these verses, there is not one inch of strange wildness that lies outside the counsel of God who is able even to make the wild ox serve him. He he speaks of it as bedding at his manger. Again, using this this tender, friendly, paternal, familiar imagery and, and showing how he even uses the powerful ox for his purposes in verses 10 through 12. And he takes Job on this tour 
of, of the ostrich. Uh, boys and girls, I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo and seen an ostrich, but, but God here describes how this, this giant bird has such a, a proud wingspan of, of over two meters, even though he cannot fly. How he scorns the horse and its rider with his, his speeds of upwards of, of 70 or 75 kilometers an hour, yet is so foolish that she leaves her eggs on the ground unprotected and treats her young harshly because God has deprived her of wisdom. God is pointing Job even to these ironies and paradoxes in creation. A magnificent bird that stands taller than Shaquille O'Neal, runs faster than a car on the service road, and yet has this ironic lack of common sense. It seems God is here pointing Job to the strange paradox that exists in creation. Perhaps as a little hint that there may be stranger and even more paradoxical matters in God's government of the world. Like perhaps a a blameless and upright man who yet suffers. It points us to the even greater paradox of the one who has all power, power and yet dies the foolish death of the cross. God is here pointing Job to his wonders in creation, even his wonders in redemption. He takes him to see the war horse in verse 19 who mocks at fear and is not frightened, who devours the distance with fierceness and rage, who does not listen to the sound of the trumpet. He, he shows Job the hawk who flies not by Job's wisdom but by God's. And the eagle who mounts up on his nest at God's command. And God is saying, Job, look at all of these wonders in creation. He is impressing upon his beloved servant that that Job himself actually has a rather limited view of God's world. That there's a lot he cannot see and understand. But God does. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who set the stars in their place, making the sons of God sing for joy. He's the one who cares for the young animals, who, who gives rain, who creates animals like the ostrich. And God is impressing us with the, the good order and stability and beauty of his creation. He's reminding Job of all the goodness that exists in God's good world. Verse uh, 4 through 7 of chapter 38, the, the stability that exists in his good world. He's reminding Job of his limited perspective. He's showing him the good order of his creation, which Job has begun to doubt. And he is implicitly inviting him to join in the song of of joy of Job 38, verse 7. And he's inviting us, too, to do the same. To be overwhelmed with the goodness of of this creator God who not only created heaven and earth and everything in them as we confessed in Lord's Day 9, but who also upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. Is that not clear in Job 38 and 39 that by his eternal counsel and providence he upholds and rules over all things? And I think one of the applications of this is though the book of Job does provide us with a a theology of lament, and God in the end will say two times that Job has spoken rightly of him, 
And so much of, of what Job says is in keeping with the, the biblical tradition that we find in, in the Psalms and in Lamentations of, of Lament. Nevertheless, Job has erred at times in the midst of that lament in failing to see the goodness and stability of God's creation, the perfect order that God has over it. A little bit like Asaph in Psalm 73 who said that his foot had begun to stumble as as he saw the suffering of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked. But then God, it says, he, he, he came into God's temple and he understood their end and he understood God's goodness. That's what God does for Job here. He brings him into his sanctuary, the place where God dwells as he condescends to join him. And he takes him on this tour of creation to see God's God's kingship over it. Again, much like the Psalms do. In taking us from the laments that characterize much of of books 1, 2, and especially book 3 in the Psalms, to the celebration of God's cosmic kingship by the end of book four and especially into to book five. Now, one scholar, William Pohl, says in much the same way that the book of Job shapes its readers to see that while protest prayer or, or prayers of lament is an ethical mode of utterance before God in the midst of our innocent suffering, that act of lamentation must not be a permanent posture, but we need to see the kingship of Yahweh and be reinvigorated with a trust in his divine goodness. That's what the Psalms do. Take note of that as you read through them at home. As, as you come into book three and, and even the beginning of book four, there is this doubt, there is this, this lamentation, but it gives way to, to um, doxology by the end of book five. Because of the great king of Psalm 145, there is the the crescendo of praise in Psalms 146 to 150. We need to see the goodness of God. And so while Elihu was wrong and, and the friends were wrong in suggesting that all of Job's prayers were inappropriate... We can also say that that in those places where Job began to doubt God's just ordering of creation, or in those places where he began to doubt God's good intention toward all of, of his creatures, including even him, or in those places where Job believed that God would not listen to him but would crush him, he erred and needed to be reminded of God's cosmic kingship as creator and of God's goodness as his father. It's that goodness I want to turn to next and focus on even a little bit more. As God's speeches show us not only Job's limits, that's our first point, but also God's goodness. We've just considered a little bit the goodness of creation, but I want you to also see um, in this description, not just the goodness of creation, but God's goodness which we notice first when, when we, we come to Job 38, verse 1, when it says, the Lord answered Job. This is the very thing that Elihu denied would happen. This is the very thing that Job feared in chapter 9, verse 17, would bring about his demise. He said, when God speaks to me out of the whirlwind, he would crush me. And so the very thing that he feared would destroy him, the, the very thing that Elihu denied would happen, God does. 
he comes and speaks to him. But unlike what he feared in chapter 9, verse 17, he does not crush him. But he condescends to speak to his servants, which we need to remember he's under no obligation to do. But he does. And when Pastor Dr. Bill Kynes says we, we first need to appreciate the fact that God appears at all. Certainly, he is under no obligation to respond to any demand that we place upon him as he is the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, by no means subject to our beck and call. Yet in an act of humble grace, God condescends to interact with Job. He he speaks personally and unmediated to this one man. We need to appreciate the goodness of God in in what's happening already in verse 1. God has listened to Job's lament and now responds. Even as he says, he hears the cry of the ravens, he hears the cry of his beloved and blameless servant Job. And as he hears it, he does not send an emissary, an angel, or a prophet, but God cares enough to respond in person. What an affirmation of Job's value in God's sight. God who introduces himself here with with his covenant name, Yahweh, for the first time since chapter 2, expressing his personal commitment to Job. And who here enters the debate on its own terms, being introduced in 38 verse 1 in the same way that all of the other speakers have been introduced. God answered and said... He condescends to enter the debate on its own terms and speak in a way that is entirely comprehensible to Job. And even that storm cloud imagery, which Job believed in chapter 9, verse 17, would crush him, it doesn't. It's a little bit like Adam and Eve in in the Garden of Eden when Genesis 3, verse 8 says that they heard the sound of God coming in the cool of the day. That word for cool is is the word wind, just as we find here. And so they hear this, this sound of a stormy wind cloud, which you would think spelled their judgment, but instead God speaks to them in grace. And that's precisely what he does here. Instead of crushing Job, he speaks to him. And he takes him on this tour of creation where, where did you notice, God engages him throughout with, with probing rhetorical questions. He does not speak this whole speech in the indicative, I did this, Job, you didn't, I know this, you don't, but he invites Job into the conversation with questions. One Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, says he puts Job in his place more as a father would his child than a judge would an offender. Or Francis Anderson, Job scholar, says there is a kindly playfulness in the Lord's speech that is quite relaxing. Its aim is not to crush Job with an awareness of his minuteness uh, contrasted with the limitless power of God, nor to mock him by putting his tiny mind beside God's vast intellect. On the contrary, the mere fact that God converses with him grants him dignity. Even the way he says, dress for action like a man affirms him as, as one who is able to engage in this kind of vigorous thinking with God. He engages him as a worthy participant, stooping down to his level, and, and as one commentator said, taking Job for a walk through his garden of creation as a friend. 
indeed as his father. For notice all of that paternal imagery throughout this speech. He, he referred to himself as the father of the rain in 38 verse 28 who has begotten the drops of dew. Even speaks of himself like a mother in verse 29 as, as a mother from whose womb comes the ice who gives birth to the frost. I mean, he's the one at the end of chapter 38 who cares for the young lions, who gives them food, who cares for the young raven and hears their cry, implying that God also hears Job's cry because he has a loving father, which we see in, in chapter 39 in the way it speaks of his loving care for the mountain goat or the deer which gives birth. This is a God who takes pleasure in all his creation, giving a home to the wild donkey, allowing the the wild ox to bed by his manger, even taking interest for six long verses in the foolish ostrich. A section which I think we see especially a kind of, of playfulness, even perhaps humor in God. Now, William Pohl says this exploration of the created order has a kindly playfulness to it, which has as its goal to reveal to Job God's constant care for his world. This is my father's world, as we sang before the service. I want you also to notice one more thing. The way that he speaks of the sea in Job 38, verses 8 and 9. Ask who, who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued. Did you notice it says at the end of verse 8, from, from the womb. Remember that the sea is, is a symbol of, of chaos throughout the Bible. And yet it still says that God makes the clouds its garment and the thick darkness he makes its swaddling band. You, you could translate that swaddling band or you could translate it diaper. Um, Eric Ortland says, God cares for the raging seas, the raging waters, like a squealing infant. This is a striking, gentle, nurturing image. And we're meant to, to conclude what, what profound goodness and kindness must there be in him if he treats even the raging waters as a father would his wailing infant. God is showing Job and showing us not just his power, but his goodness. He comes in the whirlwind as the creator of even the most powerful creature on earth, yet with the loving care of a father. Job 38 and 39 are picturing for us what those truths of Lord's Day 9 look like. He is not only almighty God, but he is also a faithful father who comes not to condemn Job, but ultimately, as we'll see this afternoon, to comfort him. Though he reveals to Job the the limitations of Job's knowledge, he does not come with the list of sins that Eliphaz or Elihu did nor, as, as he said, as Elihu was to speak in burning anger, but he condescends to speak to his child in grace. And so, Sean and Sandra, as, as you think about relating this to baptism and the, the promises that you've just made to, to raise your daughter in Christian nurture, one of the takeaways is, is that you make sure you teach Chelsea about both of these things. You teach her about God's power as the creator and the one who comes in the whirlwind, but also as a loving father who makes us his children by grace. 
Lord's Day 46 is it, is it teaches us what, what do we pray when, when we say our Father. You teach her to have both a reverence for him as our Father who is in heaven and therefore not to think of his, earthly, or his heavenly majesty in an earthly way but also to have a childlike trust as she prays to this one who is in heaven as her Father. You teach her both about his power and glory, but also about his goodness and grace. And about the place where those two things meet, at the cross of Christ, where Psalm 85 says, justice and mercy kiss, you teach her about the goodness and the power of Almighty God. And you also teach her about his providence. That's the last thing I want to point out to you from this speech, how God not only shows us his power as creator, how he not only shows us his goodness as father, but also his wise and providential permission even of the continuing presence of chaos, which he uses for his wise and good ends. That's the last thing that we see in this first speech. And again, it lines up quite nicely with what we see in Lord's Day 10, that this God who upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures also allows drought and sickness and poverty and war. These things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The same fatherly hand that he shows us in in 38 and and 39 also allows the raging sea, verses 8 through 11. Or the place of the dead in verses 16 through 18. Or the darkness of verses 19 through 21. Or the stormy hail and the east wind that he has reserved for the day of battle and of war in verses 22 to 24. As you move towards the end of, of chapter 38, he, he speaks of, of predators hunting prey in 38 verse 39, of wild, uh, untamed, uh, and chaotic animals all throughout chapter 39, even unclean animals. And then he ends with the eagle spying out its prey so that its young ones might suck up the blood of the slain. All this in the context of our father's world. Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, all of it comes to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. These chapters teach us that part of God's good ordering of creation includes the permission of some disorder for his good purposes. In some strange and wonderful way, even disorder has a place in God's order, says Christopher Ashe. Perhaps the reason why God says that Job darkens counsel by his words without knowledge is because he has failed to comprehend that God's counsel or God's strategy for creation is one that allows the raging seas, even death and suffering in this world. Wars in 38 verse 23, lightning in verse 35, the kind of lightning that earlier in the book brought destruction to Job's property. Or the kind of wise providence that allows even the hunger of young lions to be satisfied by the prey who they're hunted for. At the end of chapter 39, the young eagles sucking up the blood of the slain. God is showing Job this is part of his providential care over all things too, that he allows suffering. 
And to think about how this addresses Job's complaint, it, it shows him that God understands the suffering that he's borne. It assures him that this is not outside of God's control, nor is it the, the punishment of God or, or evidence of God's displeasure in him. But God here describes the chaotic elements in this world without a hint of condemnation toward Job. In this present age, this is part of our Father's world. And God is showing us he has a good purpose in it, even a redemptive purpose. As those two places where the prey are feasted upon in 38 verse 39 and 39 verse 30 both imply that from the suffering of the one comes life to the other. That God provides life for the young lions through the death of another. He provides life for the young eagles through the blood-dripping corpse of the slain. Do you see how God might be suggesting that even in the suffering of Job or, or a couple thousand years later in the suffering of his son, he might have a good purpose, even a redemptive and life-giving purpose. God is showing us again just as Lord's Day 10 affirms and, and Lord's Day 9 as it, as it teaches that this life is a veil of tears which God turns to our good. He's showing us that none of this is outside his control. And as he shows us in 38 verse 11 that he places limits on our suffering and says thus far and no further. He's in control. This is the, the comfort of a robust doctrine of the providence of God. Our father whose intentions are good even in the limited suffering he allows. As we see when we, we back up and Consider the drama of the book of Job as a whole and when we consider the gospel drama that it points to. Where we see most pointedly at the cross of Jesus Christ, God's permission of evil, even the most heinous evil that has ever been committed, his, his permission of suffering and death from which the greatest possible good comes in the redemptive suffering of Christ. And that's what Job's suffering points to. That's, that's what this speech is giving us a little hint of. Reminding us that God, in his good and wise purposes, does allow even, even suffering for his children. Even suffering for his only beloved son. It has a good purpose in it. As we see this afternoon, to overcome the dragon and bring life and immortality to light. And so, congregation, as, as you suffer in this life, remember Christ. Remember Job. Remember God's words to Job that here explain that he is a loving father who in his wisdom and in his goodness from his fatherly hand sometimes sends adversity, which we're to be patient in because even in that he is bringing about our good and our salvation. Sean and Sandra, you teach your daughter this, that whatever life may bring, as, even as, as we heard in the, the form prayer, uh, even as she daily bears her cross, you teach her that even the adversity God sends her in this veil of tears, he will turn to our good. Because he is our loving and gracious Father who is also Almighty God, who hears our cries, 
who comes to us in grace and shows us that he is God and he loves us for the sake of his son and no creature will be able to separate us from that love. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful tour of creation where we see the good order and stability of your world and also your loving kindness as our heavenly father. We also see the fact that in your wisdom, even in your kindness as our Father, you do permit drought and poverty and sickness, even death, but these two come from your fatherly hand. Lord, help us to accept all things as from you and to be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future to have good hope and confidence that nothing can separate us from your love your love which you show us in the death of your son. Father, we pray again that you would comfort our sister Jenny this morning in the loss of Andy. Pray that even the words that we've just heard would be a comfort to her. We pray for Sean and Sandra as they raise little Chelsea in this world which sometimes feels like a veil of tears. We pray that you would help them to show her your goodness, to show her your son. We pray in Jesus' name.